I like giving up control in the sense that I like riding roller coasters. So like as soon as you've strapped yourself in, like you've got to, I mean, maybe there's an emergency button you can press that we don't know about, but like you've got to stay on till the top. So I just really like that moment when you've been locked in and you're sort of terrified, but you have to, you have to go up and you have to come down. You are listening to Made of Human, also known as the Mopad, a podcast hosted by Sophie Hagen, who is a Danish comedian. Mopad. Trying to find out how to do life. Mopad. But it turns out Mopad. nobody knows. This conversation was recorded on November 25th, 2020 over Zoom. Uh, it is nearing Christmas. It's getting cold outside. London is still in a lockdown because of the pandemic. And people are getting nervous about will Christmas be the way Christmas usually is? And the answer is probably no. Uh, there are still rumors of a vaccine. People are optimistic. But then again, it's dark and cold in London at the time of us recording this. Sophie Duca is uh, an incredible comedian. She's an English uh, black queer writer and stand-up comedian. She lives in London and she is super funny on stage. She talks a lot about sex and race and racism and she's just an absolute treat. I I've wanted to get her on the podcast for the second time in a while. She did it a while ago where she sort of came out as bisexual on my podcast, which was a, I was very honored that she would share that with me. And now she's back. And I, of course, wanted to know how things have been going since then. And I spoke to her a couple of hours before I had my uh, Wednesday therapy session. And I thought that maybe this conversation would tire me out a bit you know, emotionally. But uh, actually speaking to Sophie Duker was exactly what I needed before this therapy session. Um, I hope you enjoy this conversation with the incredible Sophie Duker. Where am I? I am at home, uh, which is good. I think it's... um it's like not been super consistent that where I am is like feels like home or feels super nurturing or warm, but I'm from my flat, which I share with uh, three other people and it feels like home and it feels like I'm in a time where I've got some space to sort of like heal and reflect. So yeah, in my week, I'm like, this is like a nice time. I'm speaking to you. I've got some time for me. Uh, but yeah, I think things are, I mean, pretty much across the board, it's still 2020, like things are difficult, but, um, yeah, my, my year has been a real, a real mixed bag, some really good things, uh, and some really shitty stuff. The last time we spoke, you had not come out, well, you were sort of <laughs> coming out as bisexual. Yeah. You told your family and I think we're all super curious to hear how that went down. Oh my God. I can't. Thank you so much, Ed, by the way, for that. Um, cause I was like, I think I'm gonna, I think I was like, I think I'm gonna have to do it. <laughs> cause I can't keep being on podcasts being like, Hey, I'm bye. <laughs> uh, and then expect my mom not to listen or my family not. I don't know. I was just sort of like, if there's something that I'm sort of dealing with in like certain parts of my life, I sort of felt like it was going to spill out into everything and I should 
like get ahead of it. So I am now out. Um, I've actually done like a coming out to my mum. Yeah. And to my little brother. And uh, I think most, oh, and to my Jesus auntie, my very, I mean, all of my aunties are Jesus aunties, but <laughs> uh, to uh, the auntie that I call my Jesus auntie, uh, who sent me a text about Jesus being madly in love with me. Um, so I feel like with the rest of the people in my life, um, it sort of just kind of, I kind of just, I don't really mind so much about how people encounter my sexuality. I kind of, unless it's something that it's like people need to know, I'm kind of fine for people to come across it. But for those people in my life where I was really scared about what their feelings might be or what the like implications be for our relationship, I felt like I had to do it. So I did. After doing your podcast the first time, I came out to my mum. Were you nervous? I was really nervous, but because I don't think things through before I do them, I decided to come out to her through a show. Not like what? building the whole show around like coming out to my mum, but like I decided to do a show in which I spoke about my sexuality and invite her to that show. Whoa, that is... That's not what people do when they're nervous. <laughs> I know. But I thought it would just stop her speaking about it for 40 minutes and I could sort of like have something else to distract me. Uh, uh, so I invited her to a preview of my Edinburgh show. What a terrible idea. Like a, ter- like a time when you're at peak stress. <laughs> so like, yeah, I was just so, so nervous. And my partner was there. And obviously the moment, Obviously, she's quite late. And then the moment the show starts, she decides she wants to get herself a cocktail. No. But, <laughs> like, I do talk about myself because I'm kind of like, talking about myself. It's quite near the top. So my partner's sort of like blockading the door, trying to stop <laughs> her from getting a drink. And she was like, what's going on? <laughs> I'll be right back. It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty just oh, horrible. But oh. I was like, I've got a show to do. So I couldn't really focus on it. I knew it was something that would happen. I quite feel like I like giving up control in the sense that I like riding roller coasters. So like, as soon as you've strapped yourself in, like you've got to, I mean, maybe there's an emergency button you can press that we don't know about, but like you've got to stay on till Mm -hmm. the top. So I just really like that moment when you've been locked in and you're sort of terrified, but you have to, you have to go up and you have to come down. So I felt like doing it through a show kind of set me off on that. I was like, I've got got to do the show. (laughs) Uh, And she's just here now for the ride. Did you just ignore her afterwards? That's what I do when I've said something in the show. I just go, well, if I just never meet them again, then we never have to discuss it and it'll be fine. I um, I didn't sort of bring it up. I sort of waited. I was kind of full of adrenaline and I was sort of waiting at a table because uh, I didn't want to see her in case she was weird about it. And then she sort of came up to the table and she was like, oh, pansexual, eh? And I was like... <laughs> I don't know why she was so jolly. It's a bit jolly. <laughs> eh? Uh, and I was sort of like, yeah, like probably like that. Like that's me doing like a comedically, but I was so nervous. And she was kind of like, okay. And we didn't speak about it. Uh, but then she gave me a ride back to my flat, to my house. And she always, she loves taking pictures. She's always just like, she's got, I don't know, probably about 6 million photos. So she was just like, well, take us a nice day. Let's take some photos in your steps. We took lots of photos in the car, next to the car. And I just felt very accepted. I don't think I could have dealt with a extended conversation about the implications of it, what it meant and stuff, but quite like simply just felt like on a base level, I was accepted, even if she didn't understand it. 
did you did it feel like the acceptance mattered did you know that it mattered or if it didn't matter before you did it i think i did i i think i didn't know how much it mattered and obviously like that i don't even think that the coming out is complete because um there's so much stuff that is hypothetical that might come up when you know these things about someone you don't know that you're gonna like that they're necessarily gonna fall in love with someone or maybe like have children or not have children like i don't think anyone really knows even like if they're heterosexual what that means for them um what things are going to upset them or be stressful or whatever but with my mum and my aunties i kind of was like i need you to know because i want you to know me and acceptance was like a bonus but i think my mum continuing to celebrate me and celebrate stuff like that had queer content in it like felt really great because i never expected that that would be that would be something that she would do or that like some of my aunties who have like congratulated me on like comedy would do i just thought people would yeah i thought i thought i'd be rejected but i thought that like acceptance or sort of like tolerance was like the most i could hope for um but yeah still a work in progress don't know don't know what level of stuff various people will be comfortable with but um yeah so did it change something in yourself was it relaxing did you feel relief or i think i got rid of like i think i felt more fearless like that night that day that i did that show that preview it was black pride and i went to uh, a club that used to exist called her upstairs and i was just so relieved like i was just like It was back in the times where you could be in like hot, sweaty places with people, and I could just feel like this. Like I didn't have this sort of like, but what if she found? What if she found out? Like sort of demon on my shoulder. I could just be like, I own this. I control this, and I can do anything. Probably not anything, but I was like, I'm free. I'm wearing a sort of like sort of chainmail dress, uh, and I was like, I'm a knight of queerness. <laughs> um, So yeah, it felt like there was a lot more possibility and like I could exhale. That's amazing. So you're saying it was Black Pride. So what was this? Two two years a year and a half ago? Or two years I think ago? it was two years ago. I think wow. it was two years ago. Which seems mad. Well, that's because 2020 hasn't existed. It's not a thing. Yeah, 2020 is 2020 is not within time. 2020 maybe 2020 is like when you go into a place in your like subconsciousness and like in like a fancy novel where you actually go into your mind and we're just here just like battling all the demons and uh like just you know going through the shit and then when we come out we'll be like it's done <laughs> you just have you just Imagine have if it's like gr groundhog year and we all wake up on the first of january and it's just oh. 2020 again oh no but maybe we could oh i mean I don't know. Maybe we'd. Uh, I'm sorry, actually, that's a nightmare scenario. It's a nightmare scenario, that. but maybe we could be like, oh, we know not to be complete idiots. Like, we know not to make the same mistakes again. We could, I don't know. What It'd mistakes have you made? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, what mistakes have I made this year? I, I am. Um... Oh, what mistakes? I think I've been quite maybe like a bit like trying to control things. I think when like um, crisis happens, uh, I think some people, 
even though it's futile to try and control anything in life, I think, I think I try and really be like, I'm going to make up my own rules, my own spells, my own systems for dealing with this thing, uh, which aren't necessarily helpful. I think I've just tried to keep control over loads of stuff going on in my life. And also I um, was looking after a cat for a while, a cat called Dijon Mustard. Uh, definitely, <laughs> definitely made some mistakes with cat care. Got like too attached to the cat. Uh, was sure I was making I kept on googling things I don't know if you're experiencing this with Hank but like I was just like what does cat mean when cat does this and like are you meant to fit I was just like uh, and I thought it was quite chill like everyone everyone who's trying to get you to take care of their cat advertises something that's like it's quite chill just leave food out just do this but if you're in lockdown for two months by yourself with an animal you're like I can't be like the cruel like child captured villain with this cat who like it's just like I'm hungry or like what you I don't know it's just, it got very stressful so I feel like I made lots of cat mistakes also tried to control set up my own rules which in a way is I think good because everyone has to survive the situation sort of like collective distress in their own way but I think I sort of thought I knew best which it, rather than thought thinking that I was doing the best I could do I don't know if the difference between those two things. Yeah, I think I like. I think, I think I, I think what I mean, what I'm talking around is that when I say I think I knew best, is that I think I made decisions in my relationships for other people. So I'm like taking mm. on like a sort of authority because I'm like taking care of other people or being sensitive about their emotions. But I think, like a lot of the time, you do know best for yourself, and you do the best you can do for yourself, and you shouldn't beat yourself up about that but trying to sort of be a like savior for other people or teacher who haven't asked for it, who haven't been like, Hey, I need your help in this way. It's sort of dangerous because if you fail, it's connected to failing them, but in a way that they don't, it's just a sort of, it's, it's hard. I think. I was on a fourth date once and we were walking from the station back to his and he suddenly just went, stop trying to physically dominate me. I was like, <laughs> what, what, what? And apparently what I would do is I would like move, like physically move him without knowing that I was doing it. Like if we had to turn a corner, I would like sort of nudge him or like grab oh. him or like, and I was, and then I started noticing how much I was doing it. And like, I couldn't, it was like a, like a need to like, well, you, you're walking the, wrong yeah. way you need to walk this way and I couldn't accept that I couldn't physically control him that and is I mean that- an amazing thing to make someone yell on a fourth day <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's like comes from like a loving place but like because it's unconscious it's probably just like reflexes you're just like the situation or like this thing that this thing this person <laughs> a, a, a person or a thing was it a thing a man okay yeah. a man uh this man just needs to know the right way to go or like I think that's so interesting and I think some people would really have liked that whether or not it's uh the right in inverted commas thing to do I think some people would have been like I feel so physically dominated <laughs> this is a dream just just push me in the right direction and I'll be fine did you find it with the cat did you have any sort of because I, I I see it with with the dog there's a few like oh mm-hmm. no I need to just let him do his thing and not try and make sure that I ex- know where he is all the time. And yeah. I want felt, to control it. The thing is because it was someone else's cat. I didn't feel like I could, uh, I wanted her to be able to go outside 
because I, it was nice. And uh, I wanted to go outside because it was so limited um, for limited exercise. But she, I had to always sort of like watch her in case she tried to adventure too much. And then I felt bad about that. So it would have to be when I felt like she wasn't really that fussed about like going on a high speed car chase or escaping mm-hmm. into loads of other gardens. I think one of the things I was really worried about is that I tried to measure out the food uh, of what I thought she should eat really specifically. And then I th- then she found a bag and like ripped it open. And I was like, she's hungry. Like, I was like, I can't, she can't yeah. be hungry. So I like, I was just like, I'm going to err uh, slightly on the side of overfeeding her because the thought that I'm just starving this cat is terrible. Um, but I think it like it settled into a rhythm. I think maybe it was just like her being destabilized by not having anyone else in the house and her owner not being there. And uh, me, I don't know, like, like singing along to musicals very loudly, but um, it was all right in the end. And I miss, I miss Dijon a lot. She's now in Iceland. Oh yeah. Her owner's also in Iceland. She didn't just be like, get out into the garden one day and be like, I'm out of here. (laughs) (laughs) I love that idea though. Um, So does that, the sort of control aspect, does that have anything to do with the roller coaster? Is there a freedom in sort of going for, for a bit, I don't need to have control because this roller coaster will just, take me up and down you know like the what i think if i if i knew what doing stand-up would bring i probably would never have gotten up there in the first place but because i kept setting myself these challenges like you can't you need to go up on stage the first time then you Mm -hmm. can't stop it but if it was a decision i had to make then i would not have done it because i couldn't have controlled my life so i i think i relate to the just you know going on stage saying a sentence and then going right just yeah now you have to do with that whatever you want and then that's the only way you can let go of it I think that's super super relatable I feel exactly like that about starting stand-up I think just even like the work like the work it is if I'd known about the work I'd have been like yeah this isn't this is meant to be not exactly a hobby because I think hobbies are meant to be like sort of I think stand-up maybe for me was about like proving something to myself and being creatively fulfilled. But I think hobbies, real hobbies should be stuff that you don't particularly need to prove anything. It's just for the pure joy of doing it. And in stand-up, it can sometimes be purely joyful, but obviously with a lot of gigs, people being there gets in the way (laughs) and you're trying to impress them and you're trying to fulfill yourself and you're trying to achieve. Um, But I definitely think while I like like to work hard, like to do things, I just love getting myself in in a situation where I don't have to think about it anymore. Like it's kind of already, it's already decided that I will have to do this thing. And that is terrifying, but it's also really freeing because you're like, this thing will just come to its conclusion. What what will be, will be. But I think the hardest stuff is like the psyching yourself up and doing the work, whether that's like actually just waiting to say something or waiting to show something that you've made or yeah, be in a place. Once you've like got on that plane, you're like, the plane's, the plane's not going to turn around unless I really make a fuss. <laughs> <laughs> I think that sense of, that's how I, when I'm on a plane, I have this, when and when I then get anxious, if I try to convince myself that this is dangerous and, oh, what if we crash? What if there's such a relief in thinking, well, I can't do anything. Yeah. I can't get off the plane. So if, <laughs> if I die, I die and I can't do it. Like there's almost like a, it's so much 
it's such a, it's so, it feels so much safer than if I'm in a car and then I get scared because I could ask him to stop and let me out. But yeah, then yeah, yeah. all the, all the responsibility is on my shoulders. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, in yeah. a plane, I'm, well, what am I going to do? <laughs> I feel like one day you might be like, I think I, I think I could land this plane. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to physically dominate this. Pl- we're going <laughs> to. We're gonna land this plane. <laughs> just go nudge it, just nudge it a bit just to the left. <laughs> a little to the, yeah, just sorry, it's got a bit close to that cloud. Don't let me, uh, don't let me bother you. <laughs> is it is it at the point where you think you have a? Would you call it like an issue with control? Is it like a thing you need to mm. think about? I think there's like. I don't know what the right terms. I'm always like worried about using them wrong wrongly, but I think it's like maybe like a mixture of like having anxieties, like being a bit neurotic, surprise, uh, and just sort of anticipating things that could go wrong, and so wanting to put up like barriers or preventions to that ahead of time. So I think I think it is an issue because I think I I I think too much. I think more about some of these things than some people who appear to be very relaxed and easy and have much more <laughs> efficient dealings with things. I think sometimes it's like served me well, um, helps me get shit done. But I think control is definitely something that I have trouble giving up if I think, if I think I know best. Um, I know best. Yeah. Do you still, I mean, there's like seeing it from the outside seeing oh this is me thinking I know best but I mean I'm guilty of thinking the same thing but then also thinking yeah but I do know best yeah it's so hard when you're right isn't it it's so hard (laughs) oh I think but I think the thing is that like you can't even though you do know best it just other people think they know best even when they're wrong and it takes them such a longer time or different things, different things will be things and to, to come around to eventually what is right yeah. um, or realise that they are wrong. And I think one thing that I've, t- I've recently started doing this year is therapy. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> what kind? I don't really know. I th- okay, so I think, I don't know if this is a type of therapy and this was quite hard because people are like, what kind do you need? And like, there's like CBT and all these acronyms. And I don't know what any of them really mean. Um, sh- I think she is a relational. It's very much about like the relationship. Yeah. There isn't any homework. She doesn't oh, give yeah. homework. Um, and she seems to be quite rooted in your body. Like she does a lot of like reflecting about the body. I don't know what that would be if you know what kind of therapist. Somatic something. Something somatic, I think. Yeah. It's it's good. It's like she's yeah. the, the second. I saw a therapist for three sessions, like two, yeah, or a year ago. But she reminded me too much of my auntie, so I had to stop going. <laughs> also, I wasn't in a place to do it. But um, I love it. But I have told certain people in my life to get therapy because I've never been like one of those people that's like I'm anti it. But it's taken years like for them to do it and now they're like oh it's it's great thank you for saying I should do this and I was like <laughs> but for the yes but if I had said that I mean even like nine months ago you'd have re- probably reacted very badly with a lot of frustration and even if you're right or if I'm right I was right about it or the other people in their life are right about it 
just uh, just because I'm right doesn't mean that it's it's possible or, or that like they're ready to that they're ready to yeah yeah that's the annoying bit mm. or when when you when you know you shouldn't push because they need to figure it out on their own but you still say I don't know I just feel like do, do you think that maybe it's like you could need <laughs> therapy and they go no and you go yes you do that was me yeah. trying to be nice about this oh my god yes no I've had I, I've had that she won't mind me saying this with my best friend he's always been like I just don't like there like she's like I just think it's not for me I understand that other people like it. and then she told me that she's gonna do therapy because lots of people have been telling her it's useful to do if you have you do a PhD otherwise you'll never survive Smart. the stress and I'm like oh wow cool new idea <laughs> that your PhD friends had <laughs> about doing therapy um, with, a, with a male friend who was like oh yeah I was speaking to my friend also a man yeah, and he said I should try therapy. I was like, I've been saying that to you <laughs> once a day for three years. <laughs> Just sad. He says it. Oh god, but I'm glad. I'm glad. Not. I don't. I don't even. I don't know. That's exciting. Yeah. How is it? What the therapy? Yeah. I think it's. I think it's so great. I think what's frustrating is this. Maybe this person to being right. I went in with a very specific agenda um I was like okay therapy is good I know what I want to do um I I I just want to fly that what I wanted uh to talk about in my therapy was like sexual trauma stuff so I was like I need to figure out what I feel about this and how it's affecting me and it's not that that is not what some of what I've done and that it's not useful but I think the ways that I was like framing this like result like go in do some digging and excavating, find a solution. I just think I wasn't asking myself questions the right way. Or like, right is the wrong word, but I wasn't asking the questions that I want to be answering now. So probably when I came in and said to my therapist, I want to do this, like, they could have been like, yeah, that's not what, like, I mean, but they, they did it because uh, she did it because she's a great therapist. Um yeah, I think what's nice is that I, I kind of see it now more as something that is is not like the fix to a problem, but as like a way of relating to myself and my life. And that is really useful for me to have right now. Yeah, I'm not allowed to say the word fix anymore in therapy. I keep saying, <laughs> so let's fix it. She's like, we're not saying fix. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Don't say this. <laughs> How do you feel about vulnerability then? Because that's quite a big part. I mean, I'm thinking in terms of control often is about not being vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. But then having to go into a therapy where you are not the smartest person on your own brain, which is annoying. Mm-hmm. And also you have to just be vulnerable and say these things that you might not want to tell someone. Was that in any way a challenge or was that a roller coaster? I think that being a stand-up and also maybe I don't know where it comes from I think something that I've where I've noticed it is in stand-up though I didn't used to talk about myself at all and being like socialized in a girl's school where people are like here's my emotions um and also just generally being around queer people even though that is a stereotype it's like hello and here it all is so I think that what therapy did for me is that my therapist made me slow down and realize how I felt about being vulnerable because I feel like uh, 
just saying saying that I've like had like uh like that I've been sexually assaulted or saying things like I I feel like I can say something and not really think about it and think about how it's affecting me and not notice like the toll it's taking on my like how I'm feeling about it I think maybe I don't weigh those moments as much for myself like I don't I didn't used to really feel like really think about how I was feeling if like if I thought the situation needed me to be open I'd be like well I have to do it and maybe even a bit in my coming out I was like well I have to do it because they'll find out if I don't tell them even though there's no like immediate threat I was like no I I have to and it's just like how do you feel about what you want to share and it shouldn't be like the people around you or the climate or just like wanting to be funny that you're like, actually, like if you don't want to say that you've had a terrible day, you don't need to say it. So I think, I think I was used to being vulnerable and maybe sometimes used it for effect, but I, I don't think I, I think I really rarely allow myself to be genuinely vulnerable by like sitting in the full weight and thinking about those emotions and those things. Um, And that was hard. Can I ask you about the sexual trauma? Yes. Is it a recent thing? Um, uh, no, I would say that there are two main uh, events. Uh, and the the most recent one was about three years ago. Mm. Uh, and the first, uh, the first event was uh, like 10 years ago, nine and 10 years ago. So that's like... Uh, obviously, well, not obviously, but like, I think that there are dynamics and in my life, like minor events, less serious events that can play into how you feel about those things. But I think there were two main incidents for want of a better word that I found really traumatic. Uh, and though not necessarily at the time, did I deal with them? I did not deal with them at the time. <laughs> how do you find, because in the in the past couple of years and we've had all these me too movements and it feels like everyone's talking about sexual assault all the time, but it feels like we're talking about it like as a concept or as something that's happened to other people, but actually talking about the individual experiences. I mean, you might be in a different situation with your community and the people you talk to in your life, but, is it something that you talk about as something other than an idea? Do you know what I mean? I generally don't think so. I think that I know certain people like, I think there's a certain assumed, I found me too really hard. Well, I found personally me, me too really hard. I found it really hard to be dealing with almost everything to do with um, me too being really prominent in the, in like the media when it happened in the press and something that people spoke about because it, I think it obviously was so useful in people finally, finally feeling like they could share their stories and speak out. But I, I think I found it incredibly triggering. I found the way that it was utilized by certain people um, to be quite cynical and also like hard to grab hold of it felt, didn't feel specific and didn't feel specific to individuals. And it's also still felt, Uh, and this like is quite blunt but I think it also felt like almost like embarrassing to be to like have been raped which is like I don't know 
I don't know. I think there's a lot of shame about it, but I think there was like, and I, this is not, I don't think there's a sort of like competition sort of thing, but I think people were still reluctant to talk at any length about the more, like not like the more, like, I think obviously sexism and sexual misdemeanorism, there's been like, even now I'm saying like there's two main incidents, there's stuff where, um, I think in my case, exclusively men have like done stuff, which is really not on. But I think that the, I think in maybe a similar way, when people talk about mental illness, rather than talking about mental illness, they talk about like struggles that everyone has with their mental health and they don't necessarily focus on the people that have really difficult stories or it's harder for them to look at because they're attached to different things that make people feel uncomfortable about themselves. So I think it's great that there was space for discourse about certain kinds of sexual assault and sexual harassment, but I didn't feel in a sort of public way there was a sort of specificity or depth to looking at certain kinds of victims or certain kinds of attack. And it was just also just very very depressing. I feel like, yeah, like the onus is just on like lots of people coming forward and, and it just was, it just seemed to be, I don't know, it just seemed to be about a lot of pain. Mm. Um, but that, and I think that was, I did myself a disservice by sort of like switching off from a lot of it when I think there, there probably were moments of like joy and strength to be found in it, but I just found it sort of too much. Well, it's the, it's a, the, the, the extreme difference between something that is so extremely personal and, you know, there's so much shame and so many of us immediately afterwards blame ourselves or make excuses or, you know, it's so, 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 so inside. And then suddenly it's a global political thing. You Mm -hmm. know, it was immediately politicized. It was immediately about feminism versus right wing, whatever. Mm -hmm. And there was no, it felt like there was no in-between period where, we could just talk about it and sort of prepare for this moment of, oh, I guess now everyone has an opinion about this. And there was a lot of, I found a lot of the, when people would talk about it, like people like comedians or just people I followed on Twitter would have some hot take on it. Yes. And you're a bit like, oh, do you, you know, you know, you, you know, we're all like, we all have this experience. It's not an opinion like we all have this experience. I really, I really feel like that. And I think I felt a similar thing with Black Lives Matter in that if something's in the air, not in the air, but like if a story is in the air, if something feels like people are talking about it, lots of people, especially people in our industry, want to have an opinion <laughs> or even not people in our industry, just like your random uncle is like, you know what I think about this thing that you can't even like turn on your computer to look at. And you're right. No one was like... It might be something that you're living with, but it's not certainly something you're necessarily ready to deal with or want to deal with or have just finished dealing with. And it's like, here, like, why don't you think about this all the time and be reminded yeah. about it all the time and have ignorant people saying things about it because they've just thought about it for the first time. And all of that, I guess, has to happen in some space, but it's happening right in front of you, in your face, in your world, with your friends. It's a lot. Well, around Black Lives Matter, did you get a lot of um, people <laughs> needing you to come and comment on it? I got a lot of, I think at the time, again, it was just overwhelming. And I think people really did want, which is good, want to hear black voices and amplify black voices. But I think as someone that works and operates a lot of white spaces or spaces where there are a lot of people of colour, that means 
a lot of people are coming to you or looking to you. And I think at a time when you're feeling just grief, like you don't want to be a spokesperson for anything, you don't necessarily have good takes on stuff. And I can see loads of activists doing the work and people doing stuff, but you don't, you kind of, and even, even to redirect people is sort of draining. Uh, it's sort of hard when, uh, when that's an expectation of you. Mm. Um, so, yeah. What do you think is lacking in terms of, I guess, how, how we marry the global political conversation about something that is deep personal trauma in terms of how we deal with it and talk about it. Because I th believe that there'll be more, moment, you know, from now on, all types of trauma that comes from oppression or other types of things will become, you know, well, it's May, so now we talk about this trauma. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> now there's this hashtag, so now you have to think about these things. Yeah. How do you think we, we deal with that? I think, I mean, that's such a such a hard question, asking all these hard questions. I think what's lacking is people who have power and people whose voices sort of dominate any space of like discourse don't necessarily have as much knowledge. And I'm really worried of saying knowledge because I don't mean like, you've got to read lots of books about it. But I think the fact that we don't, I don't think we have... And I don't think we have like a shared language to talk about tra certain kinds of trauma or trauma at all. We don't have like a sort of every, like I think so many people are relating to it from different spaces and some of the people who are affected by it the most are speaking, sort of speaking different languages, sort of coming at it with vastly different lived experience to the people that are generally directing what is talked about. So you end up, stuff ends up being really superficial um, or just ends up being the same people talking to each other. And I guess, like, I don't know, I think, I don't know, like I'm leaning towards thinking, like, the internet and social media is a great thing or, like, a really powerful good thing for, like, making people connected and getting people to a similar page or a similar level of awareness from, like, earlier and earlier. And I think that, like, young people have a really big part to play in that and that, like, gap is narrowing. It doesn't mean that people are going to do good things with that knowledge or awareness, but I think that what's lacking at the moment when people try and be like, okay, we're going to solve Black Lives Matter or we're going to do a Me Too drive is that people are just coming, talking about the same thing, but from completely different places. Do you think we need to learn to, well, I mean, most of us know how to dissociate, but do you think we need to be, a, be able to do it? Sometimes I feel like it's a blessing that I can, that I can turn off my emotions because Sometimes I need to have this discussion with, I mean, I had a whole Me Too argument with these three white male comedians and I, uh, I, could, I felt physically like I am shutting down the emotions because I cannot be emotional in this discussion. Mm -hmm. And I almost felt like, oh, this is a superpower I have right now where I can just go, no, we're not accessing that. You need to be clear in your mind to have this discussion. Just as a self-protection, basically. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think it sucks that we have to do it, that people have to do it or not have to do it, but that it's so useful for protecting yourself. But I think, I think it's hard to 
leave yourself exposed to everything all of the time. And I don't think anyone should be expected to. So step like, yeah, step back. I think it's nice for that ability to feel like something you have control over. So like, <laughs> like you're a superhero that's like sort of mastered their powers and can deploy them tactically rather than you're just like, whoa, what's happening? <laughs> I feel nothing. Bye, sorry. See you. Yeah, nope. I don't know. I don't know when those emotions will be back either. <laughs> so, so it's November now. It's been coronavirus since ma- March. I mean, you know, what, how have you dealt with that in terms of, especially because you have this control thing and suddenly this virus feels so uncontrollable how have i dealt with coronavirus i think that this year the way that i dealt with the lack of control over stuff was to really put uh certain things at like this to put like certain things at the center of what i could care about and what I could control to like kind of make my my world smaller and be like, these are the things that I can affect. Um, and I think some of something that I have maybe like resisted, but like work, which has been good this year, which feels a bit gross sometimes. It's like I'm a cockroach thriving in a pandemic. Um <laughs> But I've been, I like, I had a big gap of no work, but since like maybe a month or two into the pandemic, I did some writing and then I've been able to do some bits of work, which is really nice because this year was a big scary year of like, how am I going to be able to live from comedy? Um, So it's nice to be ending the year, not terrified about what's going to happen in the next six months. But the stuff that I focused on was I had... um, So like I had like certain amounts of grief, but my partner had like big grief this year, um, losing a parent. And I sort of was like, okay, lots of stuff to me to do with me doesn't matter right now. I just sort of need to fix this in whatever way I can fix it. Uh, Very bad starting point because I can't fix something like that. And there are lots of things that can frustrate that, such as us being lockdown in different uh, cities so not being able to see each other for the whole of lockdown and also the fact that you can't really access someone else's grief uh, or understand it um but I was like this person is really important um and sort of was just I don't know everything it feels like everything became smaller I'm not saying that I selflessly devoted myself to my partner um and didn't think at all about myself but I think like the day's became about what little like what little thing I was doing for work what little thing I could do or even feel sad about or feel useless about or bitchy about to do with my partner and the number of relationships that I like I feel lucky to I think have lots of people in my life that I'm grateful for their presence but even though they're there like they send a text or something for that to be meaningful like the amount of meaningful connections was reduced which I didn't like but then the ones that I had Game's so much more important. I think it's that you sort of like obsess over the, the the reduced world, and that's where I try to control stuff and try to know best. How do you deal with grief? Are you good at it? Um, I I don't. I think I I think maybe like I I dissociate a little bit. 
my my the person in my family that I lost this year was my grandmother who I lived with when I was little in Ghana and I didn't really deal that well with it I um I found out uh at I found out at night I uh, looked at my phone I woke up and I had four missed calls from my dad mm. and I was like that's weird that he's calling me <laughs> at all at any time of day uh and I sort of got up and went to the bathroom and he told me and I which is shit like at that moment in that moment I think I was a bit hungover as well it was on the Sunday morning but like at 2 a.m he told me and I was sort of just like like I was embarrassed to be crying which is not a good thing to think but I was just embarrassed and my dad is very uh, I would say withholding but I would say stoic and it was just sort of like telling me like kind of robotically and I was just like don't be so like terribly I was just like thinking at the back of like myself I was like don't be such a girl don't be so like emotional like you have to be like an adult and talk about this but I was just like pretty inconsolable and then in the morning I was like cool I guess I'm going to somewhere outside Leeds to do a gig and my agent was oh, like no. you uh, you don't have to do this gig uh and <laughs> my partner was like you don't have to do this gig and I was like I have to do this gig because um I, well, I kind of suspected that my partner's parent was going to die soon. And I was like, I can't lose it now because like, I will have to take care of them when this thing happens. So I've just got to do this. Like, this isn't the time. Like my grandmother doesn't live in the same country as me. Like, you know, go, just go and do the gig. Obviously sucked so hard at the gig. <laughs> just like, if you just been like lost someone who's really important to you and so important to like my whole family, like she was just an amazing woman. But as you know, I was not, I don't know. It just wasn't popping. I wasn't feeling the joy. Like the timing wasn't there. And I was doing like, I don't, I was doing either 20 or I feel like it was long. I feel like it was half an hour. I don't know why oh, I put no. myself through that. I couldn't just like cheese for 10 minutes or 15 minutes and like get off. I was doing like a long set. I think it was half an hour. It wasn't even a 20. Oh, no. And I was just like, they, I felt like I was moving through mud. It was so horrible, but I found it really hard to, access or own my grief I didn't really I try not to think about it I don't want to talk to other people in my family because I didn't want to be made to talk about it um I found it hard to find a place to be sad there was one day that I like lay in my room in the dark and watched like a video like I'd interviewed her um one time when I got to Ghana and like had a chat with her and I just watched those but I didn't feel like I was feeling my sadness when I did it so I think not great at dealing with git grief, but I, I have cried since. And I have, um, I watched her funeral, which was on live stream. I also, it was kind of delayed because I thought I could go for the funeral, but, uh, COVID happened. Then they postponed mm. the funeral two months, but then I still couldn't go. Mm. So it was, I kind of had in my head, it will be when I go to this thing that I will deal with my grief then. But then this year was like, sorry, you no. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think letting go, like, and that was my rule for myself, like me being like, I know best, this is when I can do it. Uh, and it's not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily helpful for me. So I think, don't know, I don't know what is being good at grief. I think I tend to try and be practical. I think I'm scared of encouraging people to be sad or emotional and allowing myself to be sad and emotional in grief. But recently 
um, with my partner, I've been trying to encourage them to do whatever they feel they need to do rather than trying to be like, don't like telling people not to cry is a thing that happens a lot. And maybe you don't get to decide whether they should cry or not. <laughs> maybe that's not your call. What's your relationship with the word strong? Um, oh no, that's not, that's not, I don't, I even know I was going to do that. Strong is obviously a great word. One of my favorite words. Um, I think strong feels, uh, it feels really connected to me, like the phrase strong black woman and a sort of, but I don't think it, I think, I think when strength is an obligation, it feels difficult. I feel, also feel like it's really rare that I'm strong out of choice or a lot of people are strong out of choice. It's like, oh, you went through that. You're so brave. You're so strong. But you didn't decide it. You weren't like, I'm going to set myself the the challenge of like sexual trauma or like childhood abandonment or like losing someone I love. Like you just are sort of getting through it or not getting through it. A lot of people don't see or aren't there for the points when you really feel like you are struggling or in crisis. So strong doesn't feel necessarily like something you asked for or tried to become, I think for anyone, it feels like something that you had to become. So it, there's a sort of uh, maybe a bit of resentfulness attached. I want to be strong, but I don't think like, I don't think I asked to be strong in the ways that I've had to become strong. That's perfect. What I'm going to do now is um, I am going to ask you the last question. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to ask you to pluck your staff. Then we'll take a three-second break. <laughs> and then I'm going to ask you, have I already asked you the six extra questions? No, I don't think I have. I don't think you have. Because no, that was years ago. So I will ask you quick, fun, six extra questions for the Patreon. And then, I will, and then, then I will say goodbye. <laughs> Lovely. Awesome. I'm ready for it all. Amazing. So you've already answered the sort of original last question. So I want to ask you this. How do you feel now? Was there anything that you thought we were going to talk about that we didn't talk about? Anything you said where you're like, oh, oh I shouldn't have said that. Or I should have said that. Or where, where, where are you now that you, where are you now compared to an hour ago? When we started, I definitely feel in a better place than when, before, like than just before we started. Not that I saw you and was like, oh, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, 50 minutes of this. Um, <laughs> I felt I felt sad this morning. I felt quite sad and lost. And I said I was in like a reflective healing space, but I think the it feels like maybe and I and the reason I agreed to do this at a time when generally it's been a bit weird, it's winter, there's all the grief, um, is because I feel like when I'm being rational, I do believe myself when I know what is best, when it's just for myself. I'm like, I like talking. I like talking to people I adore. Um, I think I feel safe. So I was like, even if you feel terrible in the morning, you've got this time and it will be something that is helpful to you. So I feel in a better mood, which is lovely. Um, about the stuff I spoke about, I think, and this is maybe not for me to worry about because it's like, it's your house. Like, I think I always feel worried. Now I do feel not like I've completed sexual trauma, but even just talking about those things, I get scared that people won't have been ready for them. And then or like I've spoken about them too like because obviously that it no one thing is the subject we talked about so I'm always like I think retrospectively if I say something I'm like did I check in with how I felt I spoke about that but I'm very happy 
for any of that to be used and very happy to speak about it. Yeah, I feel, I feel okay about the next half of the day. That's good. You've been fantastic. That was the word that kept ringing in my head. It was fantastic. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I like the word fantastic. It's kind of like fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. I like it. Um, you've been one of the most proactive comedians on social media, which I love. During the pandemic, the people who are just like, right, can't gig. I'm going to put a shit ton of stuff <laughs> online, which I love. So where can we find your stuff, both pandemic, pre Pre-post-pandemic. Pre-post-pandemic. Whatever the status of the garbage fire of the world, you can find me on socials at, at Sophie Dukebox, which is like jukebox, but with a D, Sophie Dukebox. And that's, I got a TikTok, but my phone is broken, which is not great for creating hot TikTok content, but uh, I'm on there at Sophie Dukebox. And Wacky Racists is my comedy night, which unfortunately has been made, I mean, I don't know what's happening in real life, but Wacky Racist is my comedy night and will, as much as is possible or safe, be appearing across the country. And if not, I will be creating things for people to enjoy. Amazing. Are you still doing your, you did some Instagram lives, didn't you? About, oh, what the, um, my, my nudes workshops. Yeah. Oh, yes. So uh, Sophie was incredibly to the delight of basically everyone that follows me. Everyone was like, just get Sophie. <laughs> be in this nude so workshop i hosted some nude seminars over the summer on how to take good nudes i think because i got sent a nude and panicked because i have no <laughs> skills and as i mentioned my phone is broken so all my nudes look like cave paintings but um we spoke about a lot of things we spoke about dude nudes we spoke about fat nudity we spoke about arty nudes um, are they uploaded somewhere uh the what the the seminars themselves are saved but are not uploaded but for swarm uh which is a sex worker charity we created a sort of um pamphlet with like the basics the essentials of taking a good nude like news 101 and if you make a four pound donation to swarm uh then i will send you that that book so if you want to know how to take bomb nudes um and make a donation to an amazing sex worker charity uh come on my instagram dm me and, and you can buy them. It's also in my pin story. You can buy that book. And the nudes, the nudes seminars might be revived. But while it's uh, winter, uh, everything might be a little bit more, <laughs> maybe like sort of draped in blankets. Yeah. Uh, how to take a very revealing photo. How to take nudes whilst crying in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Brilliant. I love that. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for having me, honestly. You were fantastic. I'm glad I didn't set myself up to make any big decisions. That's what I thought we would talk about. I thought that this time it'd be like, sir, last time you were going to come out to me your mom. This time I want you to land a plane. I'll see you in two years. Well, I'm excited to hear about the plane in two years. Glad you brought it up. If you want to hear Sophie Duca answer some more questions, some more fun questions talking about the most embarrassing thing she's ever done, give you a bit of practical advice, you need to go to Patreon right now and sign up to get special behind-the-scenes recordings, extra little bits of conversation, discount codes. Uh, you get my two stand-up shows for free. 
And if you do join, you support the podcast and you help contribute to the transcripts of all of the episodes, the editing, the equipment, the software, the domains, and all the hours that go into this. Go to mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D, dot com forward slash donate for all of the information you need. And if you did like this episode and you feel like it gave you something, like share, retweet, rate it five stars on iTunes, tell a friend, and of course make sure that you go and find Sophie Duker on social media and thank her for adding something positive to your day by being a part of the podcast. A special thanks to these following Patreon supporters. Amy Melody, Andrea Carpo-Rockin, Andy Walker, Anne-Marie Hepburn, Barry Norton, Beth Payton, Cherry Windsor, Claire Fletcher, Daniel Reifershi, Danielle Johnson, Deborah Cody Say, Dieter Brunberg Jensen, Emma Chan, Vanilla Don Privacy, Osiris, Aurora Teratops, Galway Cass, Georgia, Harold Van Dyke, Harry Minot, Helen Jarina, Isabel Johnson, <laughs> Isabel Johnston, Joe, Joe C, Catherine Williams, Katie Hatfield, Katrina Pillarsen, Kirsten E., Kirsten Davidson, Lindsay Bushniak, M. Dash, Maeve Houlihan, Maury Fraser, Megan Roberts, Paul Swaddle, Pierre Finne, Rachel Ferdy, Ragdoll, Rianne Rivers, Robert Nose, Robin Capper, Ruth Flory, Samantha Kitson, Sarah Allett, Sarah Plumer, Sheena Machette Cole, Simon James, Victoria Greer, Victoria Layton, and Zoe Stephenson. If you want your name shouted out and mispronounced at the end of the episodes, please go and join Patreon and check out how. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Dave Pickering for editing this episode, to Harriet Brain for writing and recording the jingle, and to Justine McNichol for the logo. Speak to you soon. Bye! Oh.